That arresting Middle Eastern sounding music you just heard is from a concerto for violin and orchestra composed in 2014 by Malik Jandali. It was performed by violinist Rachel Barden Pine with the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Marin Alsop. It comes from a new recording on Sadie Records titled Malik Jandali Concertos, and it contains two concertos that violin concerto that you heard a snippet of and a new clarinet concerto written for Anthony McGill. Those of you who have listened before know that every time we have a new release on Sadie Records, and this is our new release for May 2023, we have a new Classical Chicago podcast. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records and host of these podcasts, and I have three guests on this one. The composer, Malik Jandali, violinist Rachel Barden-Pine, and clarinetist Anthony McGill. And we'll be talking to the soloists in conjunction with their concertos in a moment, but I'd like to begin, actually, with the composer. Described as deeply enigmatic by gramophone and rich with heart-rending melodies, lush orchestration, clever transitions, and creative textures by American Record Guide, Malik Jandali's music is widely regarded as a major new addition to the 21st century symphonic literature, according to Fanfare. Jandali has produced 10 albums of lauded performances of his music comprising more than 40 of his compositions. His music not only integrates Middle Eastern modes into Western classical forms and harmony, but it also echoes UNESCO's call to preserve and protect the rich cultural heritage of his Syrian homeland at a time when it is sadly being eradicated. His repertoire ranges from chamber music to large-scale orchestral works, including seven symphonies, eight concertos, and various programmatic pieces. And his works have been performed by numerous orchestras, including the Royal Philharmonic, Baltimore Symphony, Zagreb Philharmonic, and, of course, the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra. I should also note that Malik is passionate about making the arts accessible to all and, as such, is founder and CEO of a nonprofit organization called Pianos for Peace, dedicated to building peace through music and education. And he also embraces young talent from all over the world through the annual Malik Jandali International Youth Piano Competition. Jandali is also the recipient of the 2014 Global Humanitarian Award, and in 2015, the Carnegie Corporation honored him as a great immigrant. And since January 2021, Jandali has served as composer-in-residence at Queen's University, where he had studied, and he was honored for his cultural contributions and named Qatar Museum's Honorary Composer-in-Residence in October 2022. So that's quite a resume. Well, before we bring the soloists into the discussion of their specific pieces, Malik, what was your inspiration for pairing these concertos on an album, and how and why do they fit well together? First of all, thank you very much for the nice introduction to your listeners. The inspiration behind these concerti is the voice of the free Syrian children. As you have mentioned, my homeland and the culture and the beauty of Mesopotamia has been eradicated and witnessing that has changed my entire musical journey. 
So it's a natural progression after releasing my piano concerto is to have these two concertos, one for violin and one for clarinet. And I'm honored that both Anthony Miguel and Rachel Barton Pine agreed to bring my music to life. And there's nothing better than this combination, having a true Chicago Symphony for Peace <laughs> on one album. So I'm grateful and I thank you, Jim, for leading this entire project. Oh, it's my pleasure. And as you know, it takes a village to make a project like this a reality. And so I wanted to give you a chance, as you do at the beginning of the album booklet that actually starts after the program listing with your thanks and acknowledgments. So I wanted to give you a chance to thank those who made this recording possible. I want to thank my family. I want to thank, you know, especially, you know, Qatar Museums, Queen's University, obviously the soloist, Mirren, every member of the orchestra. And the list goes on and on. So the best thing to do for the listener is to get a copy of the album and read the booklet. <laughs> Great. Well, I appreciate that. I'd like to bring into the discussion now our second guest on this podcast, Rachel Barden-Pine. Rachel is one of the most prolific artists on CD Records. She performs with all of the world's leading orchestras, such as the Philadelphia Orchestra, Royal Philharmonic, Chicago, Vienna, and Detroit symphonies. She's worked with renowned conductors, including Marin Alsop, besides on this recording, Daniel Barenboim, Semyon Bishkov, Nima Yervi, Christoph Eschenbach, Eric Leinsdorf, Nicholas McGeegan, Zubin Mehta, the list does go on. She has recorded over 40 acclaimed albums, and more than 20 of those are for CD. In fact, this is number 23, I believe, if I've counted correctly. Cool. And many of those have hit the top of the Billboard classical charts. Uh, most recently, in 2022, we released Rachel's Violin Concertos by Black Composers Through the Century's 25th Anniversary Edition, which features a new recording of the fairly recently discovered Violin Concerto Number no. 2 by Florence Price, and that was recorded with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra and Jonathan Hayward. Uh, Rachel's appeared on The Today Show, CBS Sunday Morning, CNN, PBS NewsHour, Prairie Home Companion, NPR's Tiny Desk, and All Things Considered, and Performance Today. She holds prizes for many of the world's leading competitions, including gold medal at the 1992 J.S. Bach International Violin Competition. When they're not already written out, Rachel writes her own cadenzas and performs many of her own arrangements. I should note that she has a foundation, the Rachel Barden Pine Foundation, that assists young artists through its instrument loan program and grants for education and career, and since 2001 has run the groundbreaking Music by Black Composers project, and if you are not familiar with that, you really should look it up. What they are doing is just amazing. And Rachel performs on the ex-Bazzini, ex-Soldat, Joseph Guarnerius del Jesu, Cremona 1742, which is on lifetime loan from her anonymous patron. And I should note that Rachel Barden Pine is on Sadie Records Board of Directors. In fact, on our currently 18-member Board of Directors, there are two Sadie artists represented, and the other one is Anthony McGill. <laughs> so both artist members of the Sadie Board are represented on this wonderful recording. This violin concerto, Malik, you completed it in 2014 and came to dedicate it to Rachel. Can you talk about how that happened and why that choice was so appropriate to the message of this concerto? One word, it's fate. I wrote this concerto in New York, started in 2013, finished it in 14. I always had in mind women, especially my mother, who has been brutally beaten due to my music in 2011, so it was still fresh in my mind. 
In 2009, prior to that, a little girl who wrote some poetry was arrested by the dictator in Syria just for expressing her thoughts. And during the revolution, many women were either arrested or sometimes killed. Mm. Razan Zaytouni was a human rights lawyer, and she was accused of being a spy. Nobody knows if she has been killed or not. Rania Al-Abbasi is a dentist, and she was the chess champion in Syria. Mm. In 2013, she was arrested with her husband and six children. The youngest was only one year old. Today, this little child, if still alive, we're talking 12, 13 years old, that has been basically risen up in a prison cell. The inspiration was out of this dark injustice. And the message is definitely is one of hope to preserve my culture. And the underlying theme is definitely woman. So having a concerto for a woman played by a famous violin named for a woman, an orchestra conducted by another great woman conductor, it was just the natural progression to have the honor of having Rachel to agree to perform it and record it on her amazing violin in beautiful Vienna. I'm honored and grateful that she joined us in our Symphony for Peace to bring my music to life as our legacy for generations to come. I should note the official dedication is to Rachel Barden Pine and to all women who thrive with courage. And in the program notes, it mentions the four women that you talked about. I guess for those who don't know, why would your mother have been beaten because you played some music? Dictators throughout history, they realize the soft power of music because it's powerful and it can change the narrative. They fear it. They fear true art. They fear humans searching for beauty and truth. And as an American artist, it's my duty to give the voiceless a voice through my symphonic music. And that has been really accelerated and on fire after the beating of my parents. Mm. Not to mention my first symphony was just after that. And today I have eight symphonies, eight albums, and then multiple concertos. After releasing my piano concerto, it is just the natural thing to release the violin and clarinet concerto on one album. And the connection here between these two, having them on one album, is of course the artists being both from Chicago. And the second thing is that women theme ties both works together. The theme of injustice, especially that the other concerto, the clarinet concerto, is dedicated to all victims of injustice everywhere. The underlying theme or the connection between them is utilizing the same form of Arabic music, the Semai, traditional music from Syria in my attempt to preserve and present the rich heritage of my homeland. In the program notes, it mentions that you had actually performed in 2011 at a peaceful protest in front of the White House. I assume that's what got the authorities to unfortunately notice your family. Correct. Yeah, it was a peaceful demonstration in front of the White House in support of the Syrian children who were asking for freedom and peace and some dignity. And within 48 hours, the dictatorship decided to attack my mother and my father, who was a physician who studied in Vienna, by the way. My father used to attend Karayan's rehearsal when he was in medical school in Vienna. He couldn't afford concerts, so he would go to the rehearsals and, and, and watch Karayan rehearsal at the music variety. That's the connection to Vienna. So it was really emotional when I was hearing the music for the first time and having Rachel there and Anthony and, and Maren. Too many things going on. I'm very grateful for that.
Well, and you know, my violin has a connection to Vienna because it was chosen by Brahms for his protege, Marie Soldat, in the latter part of the 19th century. And Marie Soldat was a young violinist from Vienna. And it was in Vienna that Brahms first heard her play and brought her to Joachim to be her teacher. And the first performance of the Brahms Concerto in Berlin was Joachim playing the solo part, Brahms conducting the second performance in Berlin. Joachim conducted Marie Soldat, played the solo part, but she was the one that gave the Vienna premiere of the Brahms Violin Concerto. And bringing this violin back to Vienna to make a record was really meaningful from that perspective for me as well. So, Malik, how were you actually introduced to Rachel that resulted in you dedicating this concerto to her? I reached out to Anthony first after I wrote his concerto. And as you know, I had this violin concerto sitting on my shelf and not knowing what to do. When Anthony connected me with his agent, I told him I have a violin concerto that's looking for a world-renowned soloist to record it. I said, oh, I have the best, especially with Anthony. That's a great connection. And he connected me with Rachel, and he also suggested to release them both with you, Jim. Oh, <laughs> well, so that's a good board member, isn't that? <laughs> well, I know that Marin, of course, had to approve the soloists, and I'd worked with Marin a number of years back, but we had worked together just recently before that in summer of 2021. Correct, yeah, when you substituted for Midori, right? Yeah, so this was a performance at Ravinia with the Chicago Symphony, and I happened to be in town, and Midori had actually already completed the dress rehearsal of Prokofiev Concerto Number no. 1, and then fell ill. And it was literally three and a half hours before the concert, and I got a call, you know, can you be on stage with the Chicago Symphony, dressed and practiced and everything <laughs> in three and a half hours? And, you know, I'd done sub-jobs before on one day's notice, one week's notice, anything in between, but three and a half hours notice, this was pretty extreme. But luckily, I'd been doing a concerto a week online show during the pandemic, and so Prokofiev one happened to be in my fingers, and I dug out a concert gown, because this is still just at the tail end of the non-touring part of the pandemic, and off I went. I'm down the highway studying the score as I went, and yeah, and Marin and I met each other backstage, played the concerto once for her, no rehearsal with the orchestra, but I knew how it went, they knew how it went, we <laughs> played the show, and then she was like, wow, this felt like a drive-by collaboration. It was so uplifting to work with her for those few minutes, but also, oh, I wish I'd gotten to actually do all the rehearsals and the real thing. So it was really gratifying when not that long later, this collaboration came up and it was, now I can really work with Marin and it's not this little rushed thing. I guess, you know, even not being fully prepared, I must have played well enough in that Prokofiev that she endorsed me for this album, for which I'm grateful because it was... Definitely a wonderful opportunity to work with her again and to play this marvelous concerto that I've absolutely fallen in love with. Well, that obviously leads to the follow-up question. What was it like working with Marin, and what special qualities do you feel she brought to the performance? Well, one thing that I love about her as an artist, and you can see this in the documentary that's been released about her, that fantastic film, she is so talented and so accomplished, but also very humble. And so figuring out how to capture Malek's vision and how to make everything line up for the microphones and some very tricky rhythmic things as we went along. And she would try this and try that. Should I do the beat pattern this way? Should I cue like this? And in a few cases, trying a few different options till she hit upon the right one. And 
that real sense of collaboration and figuring out what the orchestra needed. And I learned a lot during that session just about observing her process as a conductor, because unlike most of the concertos that I've ever recorded, we didn't perform it before the session. She hadn't performed it. I hadn't performed it. So it was figuring it out as we went along. Of course, we'd studied it intensely, but there's nothing like getting up in front of the orchestra and actually seeing what it is. And yeah, just observing her in that process was so inspiring. And she brought musical integrity and inspiration to the feelings of the music that we were creating. Well, earlier, Malik talked about some of the women who inspired the piece for him. Did you learn of these women and their stories? And if so, was that a source of inspiration for you too? When it comes down to it, the music itself is what speaks to you. And there is, Malek just used the word hope, and that is absolutely the word that I would apply. This music has such optimism. That's always been my approach to life. Sometimes people tease me that I'm a glass half full person. I remember my heavy metal band was recording in the studio one night and then there was this huge blizzard hit just as we were about to drive home and everybody else was grumbling and moaning and and I was, oh, it's so beautiful. It looks like we're inside a snow globe and they are, oh, there's you being positive again, Rachel. (laughs) I always fall into this trap, but yes, I feel like this music just has such a feeling of the spirit of life can't be quenched. And definitely hearing about these women who've gone through such horrible things that we can only imagine and just thinking about how they're holding on to their optimism and their dignity through whatever happens and all of these women working, knowing that they're in danger, but doing what needs to be done anyway. That's just so amazing. And it's also tragic and troubling to think that this is happening today because very often we read about things from history, like my next album that's going to come out with the Shostakovich Concerto. Of course, we talk about the Soviet regime and the oppressive stress and fear that he was living under, but that's all long ago in the past. This is happening still today. And it's so wonderful that composers like Malek are following in the footsteps of composers like Shostakovich, shining a light on injustice, shining a light on areas of the world that the news cycle moves on and we might forget about, but through this great art, we're reminded of it. So Malik, you're known for writing music that incorporates modes and forms from your Syrian homeland into Western classical forms, and the violin concerto, of course, is full of these. Before we discuss particular examples, it might be helpful for some of our listeners to define these terms. For you, this reference to musical modes, is it just different scales or does it mean anything more? In Arabic music, we have something called modes. They're not full scales, but they are more like, we call them maqams. And they come from the steps of the Silk Road. Every step had its own identity. Some of it are musical identities, like for example, the Hijaz is the Hijaz area. And this is how they identified each step on the Silk Road, which is fascinating. Same thing with colors and diagrams of the rugs, of the oriental rugs. You know, when you see like a Tabriz or Asfahani, you immediately know that these colors or this rug is from that region. Same thing with these maqams. And it happened that Aleppo and uh, Damascus and in general Syria with Palmyra embraced all these treasures, I would say, along with the spices and the knowledge and the cultures and food. Music was part of it. That was the internet of the era, hmm. east to west, east, and then exchange of ideas and, and music. But the beauty of what happened in Syria, we preserved the identity. We did not change the names. Most of these names are not even Arabic. We call them Arabic maqams, but the majority of the names came from Far Asia, from Persia, from India. 
from the Caucasus, you know, all these areas. But we preserved them for generations to come. And we, of course, lost many of them due to the lack of documentation and having them archived in writing, as most of that music was preserved orally rather than in writing and due to many factors. But back to these two concertos, the common thread is the sama'i, which is the form of music, Arabic music, that uses poetry. And then there's the bashraf, which is an instrumental form that usually often precedes the sama'i as prelude or introduction. And not to mention the complex rhythmic patterns, the majority of these sama'is are in 10-8. The closest in classical music, if you divide 10-8 into two, it will be a 5-4 but it's not 5-4, it's 10-8. They are more specific and more precise in expressing their ideas. And then you also have the women's theme in the violin concerto. It's Syrian traditional songs or folk tunes, specifically for women and performed by women. They're very known. So I incorporated that, and that was also the link there to dedicate it to all women who thrive with courage. So I hope that's helpful. And then not to mention that we also incorporated the oud or the oud in this concerto to highlight the beauty of its sound and unique characteristics with the orchestra. It wasn't easy <laughs> to have it with the orchestra, but we did it. The dialogue between the oud and the violin in specific sections, especially the first movement, in every movement actually, but specifically the first it was my attempt to, again, preserve and present the beauty of my culture through Western symphonic music. I appreciate your covering all that. We're actually going to focus more on the oud when we get to the second movement. Now, Rachel, these forms that Malik was just talking about, I'm guessing these may not have been familiar to you going in. So what was it like immersing yourself in these for this work? I wasn't a complete novice when I came to Malek's music. The composer specifically from Syria, this was, in fact, the first foray, but I don't know enough to know like what's real traditional music, what might be more like popular music, but still, often there's violins, and I've always been fascinated by the Arabic violin sound and some of the slidey technical approaches to the instruments, sometimes the alternate tuning of the scales. I thought, here's a very long-standing tradition, or I should say multiple traditions, because every region would have its own version of, but still from this large portion of the planet that is using this instrument, the violin, and yet there hasn't been very much classical violin music combining various types of Arabic or Middle Eastern sounds. There's a body of repertoire of, for example, Jewish composers who have utilized various klezmery sounds, whether you're talking about Blach or Akron or so many of those composers, a lot of different composers from all different countries who've been inspired by Roma music, what we used to call gypsy fiddling, of course, the Scottish fiddling, like the album I made for Sadie of Scottish fantasies. You know, so there are lots of non-classical violin styles, jazz violin, American fiddling, that have been incorporated into classical music. And I thought, oh, are this various types of Arabic and Middle Eastern violin sounds, I really want something that I can play. I also did some listening online. Once I heard that the oud was going to be in the orchestra, I started watching oud videos. My daughter being an aspiring composer and deep into music theory, we ended up watching this whole series of oud videos that were talking about different modes and different notes that are in between the notes of the Western scale. And thank goodness that those weren't part of my solo violin part, because honestly, I have a hard time finding those notes. I probably just need to practice more, but 
I had taken a lesson once when I was on the faculty of one of these multi-genre fiddle camps that happened to be held at the Berkeley School under the curation of Mark O'Connor. And I'm blanking on the faculty member's name, wonderful, wonderful Arabic fiddler on the faculty of Berkeley. And he was at this summer camp and he was trying to get us to do these quarter tones, these scales. I played Bartok quarter tones and things, but that's different. And I just couldn't find quite the right pitches. And I was like, gosh, I guess it's easier to play in tune than out of tune. But actually, I know that some of this music probably from your country, Melek, has probably these other notes and I appreciate that you didn't make us do that because I'm not sure I would have been able to do it well enough and I'm actually curious how did you manage to write using the western scale rather than all of these varied pitches that go beyond just the 12. Certain modes have certain characteristics I didn't want to incorporate the ones with the quarter tones for orchestration reasons and that's why we had the oud so I selected all these makams or modes that would perfectly fit with my harmonic structure and with my writing in order to have a Western violin concerto incorporating the rich heritage of ancient Syrian music. And that's really what I'm trying to do. In many cases, many other composers, even though they're very rare, when they incorporate those quarter tones, you have an improvisational section where the oud or the clarinet or the violin will be improvising. And to me, that's not as powerful as having a full integration with the sonata form and with the concerto and with the orchestration and with the dynamics and with the voicing. So my goal was to have a complete violin concerto integrating the sound of my homeland fully not just having sections highlighting certain modes, but having it fully integrated into the Western concerto form. Fantastic. Well, that's what I love about classical music, that it can incorporate literally any other kind of music, various types of traditional music, popular music, etc. Even though classical is an art that sprang from Europe, I feel like it's everybody's art and that everybody can be a part of that conversation. And I just so appreciate that through this concerto, you're allowing someone like me who is not an Arabic fiddler, to experience this Syrian music and to be able to play it for myself, to share it with people and to add that to our musical vocabulary. Yeah, exactly. It's an amazing gift. And uh, by doing so, as the program notes point out, you use this, Malik, to poignantly draw attention to the devastating loss of Syria's ancient culture that you bring into your music. And of course, that's a feature of so much of your music. Rachel, does playing music like this make you feel a connection to that place and those whose plight is tied up with it? Always this conversation in performance where, okay, can somebody who's not from a certain background truly capture music that's from that background? And of course, we have countless examples of certainly that's true. You have to be an actor, put yourself in somebody else's shoes. I played the Sibelius concerto long before I ever finally got to start soloing with orchestras in Finland. I learned Mozart long before I ever set foot in Salzburg did finally visiting those countries fundamentally transform my interpretations of the music by composers from those countries? Not necessarily. I do like to remember the hills of the highlands when I play something from Scotland, but again, I played that music before I ever went there. So I have not yet visited very much of the Middle East. Yeah, only Israel and Turkey thus far, sadly. Uh, It's certainly on the wish list, but yeah, just hearing Malek talk about it 
seeing things online, videos, listening to the sounds of traditional instruments. All of that just helps you do what you can to capture something. And of course, we're always trying to imagine something that isn't necessarily our own time and place and culture. And how many times do I play something that's from Chicago from the 21st century? Not as often as I do everything else from everywhere else and every time else. So I do the best I can and then rely on the guidance of people who are experts. And in this case, of course, that was the composer himself, which is always such a privilege because can't ever text Beethoven and ask him what he meant by that dot in measure 47. Before I forget, Malik also brought up the rhythms, specifically the use of this 10-8 meter. Was there any particular challenge to you for playing in this rhythm, including you know, doing it with an orchestra? No, I'm, well... You can't see on this podcast, but Jim is actually wearing a T-shirt with a 13-8 time signature on it. You know, the this is difficult times meme made into a T-shirt. And that would be a bit more challenging than 10-8 perhaps, but certainly I've played enough 20th and 21st century music that no time signature freaks me out. But I think in this case, it wasn't a question of counting it, which was no problem at all, but making sure that it had the right groove, if you will, and particularly in the last movement. I know we haven't gotten to that yet, but making sure that the emphases are in the right place, that the phrasing is as it should be. And the music told you what it wants to do, honestly, which is the mark of a good composer. Mm-hmm. And then, as I said, the composer was there to tie up any details that might have not been as obvious to me. All right, well, now that we've brought out all the elements of the long first movement, I should note the first movement's about 17 minutes long on its own. We've talked about the forms and the modes used and the rhythms and just mentioned sonata form as well, Malik. Before we actually play an excerpt, would you like to give us any kind of roadmap or talk about the overall design of the music as you put it together? Uh, no, I will just let the music speak. <laughs> okay. It's obvious, you know, the first movement has the amazing cadenza that Rachel played brilliantly and also has the oud at certain sections after the cadenza. Great. Well, we're going to back up now and actually hear from the middle of the movement. The section that we're going to hear opens with a typical for this piece, a modal theme in the orchestra clarinet. The violin comes in very lyrically at first, but becomes more and more animated, leading into the biggest climax of the movement, culminating with a series of repeated high C sharps. So be sure to listen for those. So here is this section of the first movement of the Violin Concerto by Malik Dundali, as performed by Rachel Barden-Pine with the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Marin Alsop. Thank you. 
You just heard a portion of the first movement of the Violin Concerto by Malik Jandali as performed by Rachel Barden-Pine with the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra conducted by Marin Alsop on the new Sadie album, Malik Jandali Concertos, featuring Rachel Barden-Pine in the Violin Concerto. And later on, we'll hear from Anthony McGill, who performs Malik's clarinet concerto on this same album. Now, near the end of the first movement comes a written-out cadenza, which is technically very challenging. Rachel, how does the cadenza compare to the accompanied part of the movement? It must be a very different experience from when you're recording with the orchestra and certain things have to be done in a certain amount of time versus when you can step back and take whatever you need for the cadenza. Yeah, well, some music is highly structured, some music is stream of consciousness. Definitely you can sense that there is an architectural plan in the accompanied portion of the violin concerto, and then the cadenza is much more of a fantasy. And so I enjoyed the opportunity to have more rhythmic freedom and lots of rubato and just let my imagination run wild as the cadenza flowed along. And in terms of taking risks also, you don't have to worry about, okay, this needs to line up with the orchestra and the conductor and everything, because if it doesn't, then you have to do another take and make sure it does line up. And in a way, with a recording with an orchestra, you can perhaps take more chances than in a concert hall because if you do miss something because you're doing a cool sounding but dangerous fingering you can always do a retake and nail it the next time but of course there's a finite amount of time available from the orchestra so you can't completely indulge like you do on a solo record and you have to be able to have some kind of consistency get your part sounding accurate multiple times so that you can choose the one with the best ensemble. So those, of course, are not considerations when you're playing all by yourself. You can go for broke. If you're going really fast because you think that little passage should be really on the edge and then it ends up being a tiny bit sloppy, you're like, okay, I'll just do it again. And the next time you're going to nail it. Whereas in a concert, you might be like, well, I need to make sure it's not sloppy. So maybe I'll go one metronome notch, not quite as fast, but still give it excitement. I love the recording process because It's true that in live performance, you do have an inspiration and spontaneous ideas that occur to you from the energy from the audience that might not ever occur to you in the absence of an audience. But the other side of the coin is that you can truly capture your artistic vision in a way that's simply not humanly possible on stage in one live take. So I'm really happy with how the cadenza turned out. I really loved playing with it, experimenting, and hopefully coming up with something that everybody's going to be thrilled by. I'm glad to hear you were able to take full advantage of the extra time to record the cadenza as a solo. Yeah, well, there's certainly not quite as much pressure with, you know, the clock is going to run out and that's it. Of course, your muscles have only so much stamina reserves in them, so I have to make sure I get it in the can before my body just calls it a night. And, of course, the engineer and everybody are waiting to go home, so you don't want to linger on too long and start to get stale. That's the danger in recording session. You start to get more and more perfect and more and more boring. So I tried to just keep the energy going and keep the spontaneity as I did my takes and just relied on my producer to tell me when had things nailed. And sometimes I have to actually not listen to myself as much because then I'll start to second guess myself instead of just living in the moment and letting the producer's ears do that job. And that can actually cause me to play worse. So I just trust them, put myself in their hands and go for broke. Well, actually, I wanted to ask you, as someone who's made numerous concerto recordings for Sadie and other labels, what was your experience like working in this particular, was it a studio? How would you describe it? 
Yeah, it was a concert hall, and actually the previous session I had had was three concertos in two days, literally an album and a third or an album and a quarter. It was the shostakovich Minian pairing that is going to be my next CD release, along with the Florence Price that ended up on the re-release of my Violin Concertos by Black Composers album. And all of that was done, two different conductors, three concertos in two days. And that was pretty darn intense to have everything completely ready to go in my fingers, but then also just to do that much playing in that condensed amount of time. So going to Vienna and playing only half an album and having a whole day to get it done, gosh, I just felt like I was on vacation. (laughs) (laughs) How was the technical setup and the personnel there to work with? Oh, they spoke English just fine and (laughs) they knew their stuff and everything just went super smoothly. Well, one thing that made this recording session a bit different from others is the inclusion of the oud, or Arabic lute. I believe you've talked, Rachel, about finding its sound particularly inspiring. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there are certain instruments that belong to certain styles that bring you into that sound world, whether it's playing Vivaldi concertos and augmenting the harpsichord with a theorbo, which brings you right into that Baroque space, or having the bagpipes start blaring when you're about to do a Scottish reel. And having the sound of the oud just made me feel like my tone colors could be something that they might not have been if in the same acoustic space that day. So I just love that that's part of the orchestration. There have been some classical pieces along the way that have used unusual things. I'm forgetting who wrote a symphony or two with a bit of mandolin, right? Occasionally composers use a saxophone. But yeah, this is a really adventurous choice that I think pays off splendid dividends. And I personally hope to perform this concerto many times. I hope that other artists will pick it up, that lots of us will perform it, and that it will enter the repertoire. But of course, we can't perform it without an oudist in the orchestra. Luckily, there are plenty who have experience in, maybe plenty is an exaggeration, but there are certainly more than one or two in the U.S. who have experience doing these types of East-West collaborations or have a classical background of some kind. Of course, Yo-Yo Ma has had his Silk Road project for a number of years, and And then in a real pinch, especially perhaps in a different country where the oud options might be limited, I did consult with a early music plucked string expert who informed me that the Renaissance lute would be a possible replacement that could get the same notes with something approaching a similar color. Of course, not exactly ideal, but it would allow the concerto to be performed if there was no other option available. So can't wait to play it in front of a live audience and can't wait till we get to the oud moment and they all hear it, that's for sure. And so, Malik, you've written Western music, as we call it, that incorporates Middle Eastern forms and modes before and since this concerto. What made you think to include this distinctive instrument, the oud, into this particular piece? Well, you know, this is not my first time I incorporated the oud. I had two albums with my trio featuring the oud, piano and oud and cello. But for the violin concerto, I just thought it would be a nice touch to have the authentic sound of my culture, the oud. It's a very unique sound, unlike any other instrument. The mission behind it is to represent my homeland and the sound of and the soul of the land in a Western symphonic serious work that aims to preserve and present my culture. And have you used the oud in other symphonic works? No, this is the only concerto that I incorporated the oud in because I wanted my symphonies to be 
again, same analogy with the modes. I want them to be solid symphonies integrating the beauty of my culture. So it's not like mixing East and West. I don't have East or West in my music. It's just music. Hmm. It's the music of humanity. And not to mention my ancestors invented the musical notes, not to Mesopotamia, but to humanity. I don't like to differentiate or to categorize instruments because at the end of the day, what you are hearing is a violin concerto. It happened to have the wood in it, similar to having the oboe mm -hmm. or having the harp. It's not mixing and it's not it's just how I feel and what I wanted to express with the mission and the vision of this work. I love that answer. And the way that you incorporate the oud, it doesn't seem like an outside element that's making a guest appearance or some kind of oil and water mm -hmm. pairing. It it really does feel like this is the instrumentation and the oud is in the orchestra. And I love that. Well, the oud figures significantly in the second moment in duet with the violin and passages that, for me at least, are especially evocative. Malik, did you have any particular aim in mind when writing this, I think, very memorable movement? This is the melancholic movement. I was actually myself during the time of writing this movement, experiencing so much death. Even my cat died when I was writing this movement, but it was so much violence in my homeland and it was a very sad period at the time. But the orchestration and incorporating the oud is really what I wanted to achieve here, to elevate Arabic music, because most of the time Arabic music is viewed as you have an ensemble or it's just folk music. Like you mentioned, I wanted to treat the oud and the sounds of my culture equally into that Western form of the concerto. So we end up with a fresh vocabulary, but with the same form. Where the first movement highlights the Zungala Maqam of the Sama'i by the Syrian scholar Ali Darwish. The second movement is the Andante, also has the Sama'i, but it also features the Oud in a different way, uh, since we don't have the cadenza in this movement. Well, let's hear some of that then. Here is the last four minutes of the Andante, starting with a passage where the violin is in duet with the Oud, building to this movement's climax and reconnecting with the oud for the quiet ending. Once again, we hear violinist Rachel Barden-Pine with the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra conducted by Marin Alsop with Basam Halaka playing the oud.
You just heard a portion, the last few minutes, of the very beautiful and melancholic Andante from the Violin Concerto by Malik Jandali, as performed by Rachel Barden-Pine, soloist with the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Marin Alsop. You heard a lot of an instrument called the oud, the Arabic lute, performed there by Bassam Halaka as a member of the ensemble. If you like what you're hearing, by the way, and I sure hope you do, I think this is really amazing music, you can find this album when it's released on May 12th on all the streaming sites you might want to listen on, such as Spotify or Apple Music or Tidal or wherever you like to listen. It's available for pre-order actually now and will ship on May 12th, whether you order it from the CD Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org or Amazon or Archive Music or wherever you like to get your CDs. So however you like to listen to your music, I sure hope you'll want to check this album out. And actually, I should add that one of the amazing things that CD does is makes its entire album booklets available on its website. So if you are listening on streaming, you can still for free read the entire booklet, which I do hope you do. Yeah, the notes are very informative. It's worth reading about these different Syrian and Middle Eastern forms that are being used as explained in the notes. We heard a clip from the third moment at the beginning of this podcast, and I'm actually going to play it again to set up our discussion of the finale. What strikes me listening again to that is how dance-like the music is. In fact, this movement incorporates a dance form called the longa, which is appropriately a dance performed by women, as I think you noted earlier, Malik. And the movement is generally characterized by jaunty dotted rhythms. It also offers many opportunities for virtuosic display. How did you enjoy these, Rachel? Oh, I love this last movement. It's such an earworm. In fact, it's going through my head right now. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It just feels like you're at a party. Great. Well, of course, the movement is not all high-spirited dancing. The mood does darken in places, and especially at the end with a poignant, even eerie reprise of the opening theme at a slower tempo before it builds to another one of those big climaxes, this time on a sustained high A. Malik, is there any special meaning that this conclusion is meant to impart? In life, everything has an end, and that was the end of the concerto. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel, you talked about hope. Do you get a sense of that from the ending here? Oh, absolutely. I feel like movement leaves you feeling like your spirit has been refreshed, and you feel invigorated and empowered, and some concertos are meant to leave you relaxed, sometimes even troubled. Different music has different missions, and in this case, 
it's shoring you up. It's giving you encouragement. Rachel, you had talked about one of the tricky things about getting this concerto programmed being finding someone who can actually play the oud part, because of course it is a folk instrument, and there are many people who play it but don't really read Western music, and then there are people who read Western music but who can't actually play it. So, or uh, or they, maybe they can read the notes but aren't used to following a conductor, and that's such a different skill than just playing your own music or mm-hmm. even playing in collaboration with others where it's a ebb and flow of a, more of a chamber music or traditional music type ensemble. I discovered this with rock drummers who can keep fabulous time. And when I started rolling out some of my symphonic arrangements of some of my favorite metal songs, I discovered very quickly that a great rock drummer was lousy in an orchestra because they didn't know how to follow the baton. And so I attempted to recreate the entirety of the rock drums using symphonic timpani and percussion, um, which is, of course, what Earl Minion did in his concerto for me, which will be our next conversation. Yeah, so finding the right person is not easy, but now we have a list going. My management has the names and contact information. So any orchestra anywhere that wants to program it, we should be able to make it happen. And I hope the release of this recording will help in that regard. But I think what you're telling me is right now there's nobody lined up yet for a live performance. No, but certainly there are people who are interested. And it's just these things are a cycle, right? Because I already am booked for 2024. So now we're looking out to the next year's 2025, 2026. And I'm very hopeful, especially with the actual release of the album, that there will be interest. And certainly everywhere I go, I will be able to hand it to whoever I just played the Mendelssohn with that week Mm -hmm. and say, hey, when I come back, you know, I want to do this one. And I'm sure I'll get some bites. Great. Well, I think it's brilliant. So I did want to ask about what the highlights are for the rest of your year, both in concert and recording. And you've alluded to the August release on Sadie Records a couple of times, but why don't you give the full details of that? Yeah, so there's a brilliant concerto that was written for me by a New York-based violinist and composer, Earl Minian, who is one of only just a handful of heavy metal violinists in the U.S., myself, of course, being another. And so we've known each other for years through that finite scene and bonding, but he's just a wonderful classical composer as well, and his music is unique in that it incorporates not rock and roll, right? I mean, you wouldn't listen to it and think it's some kind of a rock-flavored crossover piece. It's literally the, some of the subgenres of extreme metal. So it sounds like contemporary music, but a particular flavor that those of us who know the roots of it recognize as being inspired by these types of heavy metal subgenres. And yeah, I'm obviously the person to play it because I know that music and having it combined with classical is truly a dream come true. Well, and not just with classical, specifically personally my favorite concerto, the Shostakovich first concerto. And you mentioned program notes. People will definitely want to check out the program notes to this album because Earl wrote them, the composer, and he wrote it from the point of view to explain why Shostakovich is the favorite classical composer of metalheads, including himself. Exactly. So, yeah, I'm about to go on and on about this, but actually we have to save that for the next conversation. But yes, there is no other concerto that it could have been paired with. And actually, one of the happy things is that Shostakovich is, of course, Jim's all-time favorite composer. So it's an album that makes everybody happy, even though the music is not happy at all. Um, (laughs) Actually, something you said about the way Earl brings in those elements of metal and other extreme music into this concerto actually reminds me of what Malik was just saying about how he incorporates 
Syrian music into his, but it's still a violin concerto. It's still a classical form. It's not, as you said, oil and water. And I think the same is true of what Earl does. Right. And we even talked about that. Like when I gave the premiere of the Minion Concerto with the Phoenix Symphony, the question is, should I wear one of my leather outfits that I wear when I do my rock arrangements with orchestras? And the feeling was, no, this is a violin concerto. I should wear a gown. I don't put on a Hungarian costume when I solo the Bartok concerto or... I should just wear a concert gown because this is a classical concerto. And as I said earlier, I just love that classical can incorporate absolutely anything, Middle Eastern music and uh, extreme metal. Why not? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, so that's coming up. And then another concerto that was recently written for me by the wonderful Grammy Award-winning pianist and composer Billy Childs. I played it with a whole consortium of orchestras last season, culminating in performance with the Grant Park Orchestra here in Chicago. And I'm going to now be bringing it to Los Angeles to perform at the Hollywood Bowl with the L.A. Phil next summer. So that's definitely a highlight, playing with the Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival for their 50th anniversary season and some other awesome concertos in Montevideo and um, Belo Horizonte, Brazil, and Uruguay, of course, for Montevideo. And yeah, and then doing some festivals with my daughter because I always have to carve time out of every summer to take her to do her chamber music things and try to balance my own concerts and nurturing the next generation of young musicians in my family. (laughs) And and Sylvia is a budding violinist and composer. Yeah, well, her main inspiration is as a composer. And yeah, she's had her first orchestral work played by half a dozen youth orchestras around the country this season, which has been an absolute thrill. And it's, it's just so fascinating. I, of course, worked with composers and with the music of composers my entire life. But now to be living with a composer, I'm oh, wow, this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay, so we usually end our podcasts, and we're going to end this section of the podcast with our usual question about Chicago. And it occurs to me that, Rachel, you've now added Syria to the list of places or cultures whose music you've traversed in your far-ranging musical career. You talked about some of the other national musics you've performed before. So I was going to ask, do you find Chicago a place that's home to a particularly wide range of national and ethnic musical cultures and talk about the ones that have been most important to you in your musical life. Yeah, well, and also non-classical styles that aren't just from the traditional music point of view, but, you know, perhaps popular music. As I was just talking to a reporter from a Chicago blog today, talking about how I grew up going to clubs and hearing industrial music and hearing performances of those bands back in the Wax Tracks days and, yeah. and the Chicago house music scene when it first had started up when I was a teenager. and. And of course, the blues, which I've already made an entire album inspired by my love of Chicago blues, our blues dialogues record. And yeah, so, so many different things, but definitely the whole world lives here in Chicago. The Chinese Fine Arts Society has put on so many amazing concerts for decades and decades, and I've had the opportunity to participate in some. I played the Butterfly Lovers Violin Concerto, which is a completely classical thing with Western instruments, but I've also done chamber music with the Asian lute and the pipa and the bowed arhu, the Chinese violin and I've had encounters with the Greek community when I played a concerto by Theodorakis and then wrote my own encore which is a solo violin version of the theme from Zorba the Greek where I did the thirds with 
two of my fingers and then plucked the balalaika part with my remaining finger using those Paganini tricks. Yeah, there's always so much going on. And of course, from different periods of music, we've got an amazing early music scene, medieval Renaissance Baroque stuff going on and an amazing contemporary music scene. And there's just everything here. Why would you ever want to live anywhere except in Chicago? <laughs> That's the way I feel. Constantly more to discover. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for being part of this podcast and part of this amazing album of concertos by Malik Jandali. And now joining to talk about his concerto is clarinetist Anthony McGill. Hailed for his trademark brilliance, penetrating sound, and rich character by the New York Times, Anthony enjoys a dynamic international musical career. He's principal clarinet of the New York Philharmonic, the first African-American principal in the orchestra's nearly 200-year history. He's also a recipient of the 2020 Avery Fisher Prize, one of classical music's absolutely highest awards given in recognition of musicians who represent the ultimate in musical excellence. He's appeared as a soloist with top orchestras, including the New York Philharmonic, Metropolitan Opera, Baltimore, Boston, Chicago, and Detroit Symphony Orchestras. Probably best known popularly for his role in the 2009 first inaugural of President Barack Obama, where he played at the inaugural alongside Itzhak Perlman, Yo-Yo Ma, and Gabriela Montero in a piece written specially for the occasion by John Williams. And speaking of chamber music, he's a collaborator with all the top string quartets, including Brentano, Guarneri, Jack, Miro, Pacifica, Takash, Tokyo, etc., and soloists. Performs chamber music with the likes of Emmanuel Axe, Gloria Chen, Yefim Bromfman, Gil Shaham, Midori, Mitsuko Uchida, Long Long, etc. He's on the faculty of the Juilliard School and Curtis Institute of Music and is the artistic director for Juilliard's Music Advancement Program. He's been covered in national publications and radio and TV programs. He's probably particularly known for his hashtag Take Two Knees campaign protesting the death of George Floyd that went viral. We've talked about that in previous Classical Chicago podcasts with Anthony, so you can check those out on the Sadie Records podcast page. But more importantly, if you haven't experienced Take Two Knees yet, you should really go to YouTube and take a look. And I should note that this is Anthony's sixth recording for CD Records, which we're particularly delighted to buy. So, when I said his concerto earlier, I meant that literally because Malik wrote the piece specifically for Anthony. So I wanted to start by asking, how did you first meet? And Malik, how did you come to propose writing a concerto for Anthony? I met Anthony briefly at the Palmer House on the stairs of that Chicago historic hotel during the American League Orchestra Conference. I asked him, if I write you a concerto, would you check it out and get me your feedback? And he agreed. He was very kind. It was a very brief meeting. And within like a year and a half, I presented him his concerto and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, do you have any memories of that encounter, Anthony? Yeah, I do. And it's a testament to Malik's dedication to his craft and to the benefits of being open to new creations and new music. And I was lucky because I managed to say, yes, I would love to. And then all of a sudden, just a little time later, this amazing concerto has been recorded and it's in real life, so to speak. And it's fantastic to think about because I'm the clarinet soloist, of course, and with the great orchestra, but 
It really takes a creator and he's the ultimate creator of this amazing work. And I'm just honored that he chose me for the vehicle for it. And I do remember this circumstance. I had no idea whether or not he would reach out again, or if I would hear from him about it again. And sure enough, Malik is determined and he made this amazing project happen. Well, I should make a note about that League of American Orchestras conference in Chicago, because of course the reason you were there, Anthony, was to perform the world premiere of a concerto by another fine American composer, Michael Abel's duo concerto titled Wing Creatures that he wrote for you and your brother, who's, of course, principal flute of the Seattle Symphony, which is also the title work of the album Wing Creatures on Sadie Records, where you and Damari perform a series of duo concertos. So I was very glad to learn that that occasion resulted in this. <laughs> album as well. And I should mention when you said this is the sixth recording, that's stunning to me. And so I'm very thankful for this and it's fantastic. Well, of course, uh, you bring us such great projects, so that's why we keep uh, making these wonderful recordings. And speaking of this one, Malik, after dedicating the violin concerto that we talked about earlier, specifically to women of courage, how or why did you decide to dedicate this piece to, and I'm going to read the dedication here, in memory of all victims of injustice. What made you decide on that dedication here? That's a great question. The source and inspiration is the Syrian children. When I approached Anthony, and the reason I approached him is because we all somehow experience injustice, and we know that clearly in the classical music world. And the children of Syria at the time when I approached Anthony were actually experiencing the same injustice. Quote, unquote, they were in an ongoing modern-day Holocaust where they were fleeing cluster bombs and chemical weapons going into you know, relief sites all over the world. And you know, the lucky ones were actually escaping through rubber boats in the, into the Mediterranean and drowning in peace rather than living in peace. So the message is very clear. It's, it's my attempt to tell the story, to change the narrative, and to do some good in this world as a legacy for generations to come. I want to remind myself and the audience and you that I'm writing music for 200 years from today. I will be gone. We have a saying, every soul tastes death. And the story is, what have we done as humans when we witness such atrocities during our lifetime. Well, your violin concerto has a specific women's theme, as we discussed before. Is there anything in the music of this concerto that reflects this different focus that you just mentioned? Focus is, again, injustice, and I emphasized the word all because I want to be inclusive, and that's what music is all about. You know, at the end of the day, the term symphony in Greek or Latin means to sing together. And music unites people. That's what we're trying to do, collaborate and partner with like-minded human beings through artists to change the narrative and to unite uh, doing permanent good in this world while we are alive. That's beautiful. Uh, Anthony, you've talked about how playing this music has drawn you into the plight of the Syrian people. Can you expound on that? Yes, I think... The power of music really is, as Malik was touching upon, is about how we can unite in a common goal against injustice through an art form like music. 
and music being this universal language. In this particular case, it, is, it enabled me to go into as much as I can to the heart of what Malik is trying to communicate to the world, that this kind of violence and separation and extinction of peoples and a people's culture is something that should be fought against at every turn and brought to the forefront of our knowledge. And in a way through using the clarinet and me as a vehicle for this communication of this pursuit of peace that Malik so believes in, it enabled me to feel, listen and hear this spirit of what he's communicating through his music. And so in this journey of discovering this piece and learning the piece and recording the piece, experiencing it in that way, I just got a, a little tiny bit closer. My heart became closer to the people and to the community and to the cultures and the children that he speaks of so passionately. And it makes the discovery of this music all the more important to go on that journey and to be able to present it to the world in a, as serious a way as I possibly can as a musician. Well, let's get into a more specific discussion of the music itself now. The first moment, as noted in the program notes here, melodic fragments emerge out of the mysterious orchestral introduction, colored by ticking xylophone interjections and rustling flutter-tonguing and tremolos. I guess this creates an initial sense of ambiguity. Was that your idea here, Malik? The idea was basically, like Anthony was saying, is to connect and to connect with my journey of searching for beauty and truth. And sometimes the truth is not very beautiful. So what you try to do as a composer while you're creating this, especially when you have an amazing artist like Anthony who agreed to bring it to life, and I want to confess that this is the first concerto that I write where the human breathing is part of bringing this music to life, which is the clarinet. And like the piano or the, the violin, here you have the human breath. So it is a connection, like a true connection with the instrument where the human breathing becomes part of the creation of this concerto. And I was always thinking about it when I was writing and dotting every note, thinking about breathing, about life, about hope in the midst of destruction and injustice. So the ambiguity for the introduction of this concerto was my way to introduce this amazing artist and the instrument, the clarinet, on a high note as a symbol of hope in the midst of injustice. Well, as you know, when the clarinet does come in, it announces itself on a high fortissimo, immediately setting itself apart from the orchestra. In this concerto, is the clarinet a kind of protagonist here, the way people often describe the soloist in Shostakovich's, for example, violin and cello concertos? I mean, yes and no. It's a concerto for clarinet and orchestra, but in many instances, the clarinet becomes also part of the orchestra or in an accompaniment role. And, you know, as an American artist, it's all about versatility and having the courage to try new things. And I tend to be lucky that I have unique vocabulary through my heritage, through my Syrian heritage, but I also have my freedom and my American values of equality and justice. 
and most importantly, freedom to express uh, that gave me the right environment to create such a concerto for uh, Anthony Miguel. Wonderful. So the clarinet moves on to a Middle Eastern sounding theme, and this concerto uses many of the same Middle Eastern modes and forms employed in the violin concerto, such as the Samai, Makam, and Bashraf. The album program notes mention some additional forms heard in this concerto, including early on in the first movement. Can you explain what are a wasla and a mwasha and how they're used here? What I'm trying to do in the Arab world or in the Middle East in general, we have an amazing culture of music. Sadly, it hasn't been integrated into symphonic music. So it stayed local. It hasn't been really presented to the world per se due to many factors, most importantly, injustice and lack of freedom. So that's why I emphasized in my previous answer, being an American artist is the key. So the mushah or the wasla, wasla literally means the connection or connect. And when I hear Anthony's answers, he always mentions the word connect, which I love. So we have the wasla, which is the connection. It's a little instrumental section of the Mwashah, which is based on poetry, Arabic poetry. You also have the Bashraf, which is also only instrumental. So in Arabic music, we do have instrumental forms for just music without lyrics or poetry or singing. However, due to many reasons, it hasn't been really integrated into symphonic music. It took a tragedy, which is the eradication of my culture, to wake up and say, hey, here I am, being an American, having all the resources, and having uh, my hands on all these ancient books that I have with melodies, and not to mention what's going on as we speak. So uh, here we go, seven concertos, eight symphonies, and all in the same mission, which is to preserve and to present my rich heritage while it's being eradicated. Hmm. Anthony, this unusual, at least to Western ears, melodic harmonic language. Was any of it familiar to you before, or was this more of an immersion process for you to learn this concerto? I think that having never played music with these modes, what's interesting about it is that it felt very familiar to me. And that's because music speaks to you. And what I love absolutely about this concerto is that even though this concerto is unique and every concerto is unique and different, the way you can find the truth in music that if it feels like you may have played it before, or if it feels like it's familiar, even though it may be unfamiliar. And this music speaks to me in that way. So even though this is a really special piece because it allows me to speak some of these uh, traditions that Malik speaks of and knows from his culture, it made me feel like I was in touch with that as well. And playing this instrument and playing a wind instrument and singing these melodies, it felt like I knew them from a long time ago. And I think there's something human about different notes in the world. There are only two musical notes, right? And there are often common threads between lots of different cultures and the sounds of their music, if you just break it down to the actual notes. And I think that's what makes it unique, but also familiar is that as an artist, yes, these are the notes that I've been playing my whole life, but they're arranged in a very unique way because of Malik's 
own culture and the bringing it together of that is like yes i have to immerse myself in this piece and this thing but what's great is that i didn't have to travel a large distance to do so he brought that sound and that place and that musical voice to us when we were recording this piece that's what i think is really interesting about it so it's yes and yes it's new but also it feels like it's old Hearing you say that, I wonder about another older form that the clarinet is so connected to, whether it maybe has any relevance here. I'm sure you've played your share of klezmer music in the past. Is there any connection that you feel there? Yeah, the clarinet's voice is very flexible and very malleable. So I think there are definitely sounds and creations on the instrument where in one moment you may hear this Syrian melody and this sound and these notes and another moment, it may sound like the voice of, it's a similar voice. So like I said, with similar notes that you use, yes, for sure. There are so many different sounds that you may hear on the clarinet that sound at moments like it could be a klezmer clarinet, it could be a blues clarinet, a jazz clarinet, or a Syrian clarinet. And I think that's what's amazing about music, how small the world really is and how universal the language of music is. Like I said, we all use the same notes. And that's a very astute observation that there could be those connections there. Wonderful. So before we zero in on a passage for people to listen to, Malik, is there anything you'd like to say about the overall plan of this movement? First movement is my attempt to tell the story of who we are as humans going down to the basics and that's what anthony is uh, touching upon is the authenticity and the humanity in all of us at the end of the day we are all human beings whether we like it or not (laughs) some people obviously don't so the music reminds myself of those basic values and it's my attempt to tell that story to everyone wonderful well to give people a sense of the movement i've chosen a passage that starts right about the midpoint of it with a new theme in the clarinet that eventually grows in intensity with higher and higher 16th and 32nd note runs in the clarinet, followed by a restatement of the opening gesture, the clarinet's introduction and in beginning of the piece. Malik, what for you is going on in this passage? And Anthony, what's it like to play those very fast note-filled runs? I love the way this section starts it's really soulful and mysterious and it has these whispers and these snake-like melodies and then it's basically an expansion of those it's almost like we start off with these simple moving melodies that are medium fast legato bellies where it's just singing and going through this smooth mellifluous register of the clarinet and then that just builds and builds so it's like these expressions of more passion and pain as the clarinet gets higher and higher and it's these transitions that take you on this journey from one place to another throughout the piece that Malik uses beautifully and he explores the range of the clarinet expressively too starting in the medium to lower beautiful sweet range to this more expressive painful, high range going up in these big virtuosic waves of sound. I think it's a a wonderful section to demonstrate the beauty that's in this piece. Malik, anything to add? I think Anthony did it all. Wonderful. Okay, well, let's hear that then. So this is about two minutes starting right at the middle of the first moment of the 
Concerto for Clarinet and Orchestra by Malik Jindali, performed by its dedicatee, Anthony McGill, with the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Marin Alsop. You just heard a portion of the first movement of the clarinet concerto by Syrian-American composer Malik Jandali, as performed by Anthony McGill on clarinet, of course, with the Vienna Radio Symphony, conducted by Marin Alsop from their new CD recording, Malik Jandali Concertos. Before we discuss the rest of this concerto, Anthony, what was your experience of the recording sessions, and how are the sessions different from live performances for you? Well, these are interesting. Recording sessions are great because they're the most in-depth training ground for diving into a piece because you get to not only perform it quite a few times in those moments, but also you get to work. You get to find those moments of challenge to be able to dive in and get to work on a piece in that you can't sometimes do in a live performance. You know, it is what it is. That's the last time you'll hear it for that moment. But in the recording, you can try to get it closer to being what is right. You can attempt to dive in and explore what is the version of this that might be close to being really true. And to have Malik there and be working with Marin and the orchestra together, and you can say, well, I think I want it a little bit more like this, or this could be a little bit better. It's a great exploration of what a work is, and you get to know the work much more intensely than you would just performing the piece over and over again. In recording sessions, you can dive in and 
explore the real meaning of the piece and the, the safety of just being without the audience listening to it, but exploring it for yourself as an artist. It's a lot of work. It's an intense work. So it's taxing, but rewarding. And now these were reading sessions, right? It's a rehearsal and recording process when you do it that way, right? Personally, I think all recordings are rehearsals and recording <laughs> sessions. I don't think there are any recordings where that's not the case, because as musicians, you're always rehearsing. If you get a chance to play something again, that's practice. So there's practice, there's rehearsal, there's performance all built into any recording session. It doesn't matter if you've played the piece a hundred times or played the piece one time. Yes, to feel and rehearse the piece. That was the first time I'd ever played it with the orchestra and with Marin conducting. So that's actually very interesting, but I'd feel the same way if we had already played it many times. I think the recording goes the same way because people are prepared. Are there any particular challenges though for starting from scratch, essentially, versus having performed live before going into recording? Yeah, one of them is that none of us really knows how the piece sounds until we get into the room. We have the MIDI, the tracks or a recording or electronic version of the piece normally, but this is fresh. I think it's not a negative challenge. I think it's actually positive because you get to have that, how should I say, that moment of like, aha, this piece is gorgeous, or this piece has these thorny edges, or this piece challenges you in this way and that way. That's all positive. In that process, it actually creates this energy that is all good for the final recorded performance of it. When uh, approaching a piece this way, I expect it's helpful that you had the composer right there. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, yes and no, because what I did during the recording sessions, if I may uh, add, is to give Anthony total freedom because this is his concerto and I witnessed exactly what he just described as if it's like a freeing moment when he's absorbing the orchestra with his solo part and enjoying coming together, which is basically symphony, which is the concerto. Uh, to me, that were the best moments witnessing artistic excellence, as he mentioned, amazing preparation. I disagree calling them reading sessions. They were performances because everybody was not 100%, more than 100% ready to go. And that makes it more enjoyable, more meaningful, especially in such a timely project. And I can summarize it in one word, respect. Mm, nice. Well, let's move on to discuss a little bit the second moment, which is titled Nocturne and is in a variation format. As a composer, Malik, what techniques and orchestral colors do you employ to make something sound as night music? Again, it's my attempt to imitate nature, and you have basically all the techniques you know available from cluster chords into uh, tremolos, and the colors of the orchestra, and not to mention the amazing range of the clarinet and the techniques of the clarinetist. To me, I had no boundaries, no limits, because here I have one of the most amazing clarinetists on planet Earth today, one of the best orchestras, one of the greatest conductors. I mean, what else can you ask for? <laughs> there were no limitations to me as a composer, knowing that this is going into creation. Back to your question, it's always an attempt. You just really don't know until you hear it, life coming together. And it takes a team of dedicated true artists to make it work. If we are not all on the same page, believing in the creation of this music, 
it may not work even if it's done magically. The magic comes from the human soul, from those amazing, I call it breathing passages of the clarinet because it takes a human breath to bring this music to life, especially with the clarinet concerto. And Anthony, for you, does knowing that this is night music affect the way you play it? I think that the way I play it is probably more affected by the sound texture at the beginning of it versus the title. And if those lean toward the same dark, melancholy character, then that makes it all the more effective. But I always go to the sounds first and then to the title of the movement. And in this piece, it works beautifully together. Sometimes when you add, I'm very visual as well when I perform. And so the sound itself can have a texture to it that matches up nicely with the nocturne flavor of the title of the movement. It's because the textures also sound to me like it would be some sort of nocturne. And there's so many different types of nocturnes as we've heard throughout our lives that they don't all sound similar. Actually, some of them sound brighter than others or darker than others with sadder melodies or happier melodies. So it's hard to pinpoint exactly what that is. But in this case, I think there's this moody, velvety, hushed quality, especially at the beginning, that is a sadder, more serious nocturne that he explores. Lovely. So the booklet program notes uh, describe the opening of the finale as steadily pulsing. Uh, to me, this immediately creates a sense of drama that leads into clarinet writing, which is, again, in the booklet, accurately described as dazzlingly virtuosic. Malik, what do you want to convey with this opening? And Anthony, how is it to play? Oh, I guess I can go. I think it's actually a really fun movement, challenging technically as well, and explores all of these different characters, the virtuosic characters, but also the range of the instrument the different textures they can play with the legatos, but also there are a lot of technical passages that are very well articulated with tonguing and staccato and accent and with this intense espressivo throughout. And Malik, what was the design in terms of the writing here? The purpose was to showcase artistic excellence, especially that the concerto is written for Anthony, and also to integrate these Syrian melodies in a sonata form or in a concerto. It's really, again, my attempt to preserve and present my culture through this concerto. And this movement, the mission of it is hope. It ends with a dance, with the high note, uh, after all the melancholic second movement and the nocturne and the variations. And also reminding myself and the audience that the ultimate goal of all what we are doing is hope. Hmm. Speaking of virtuosity, the movement eventually leads to a virtuosic cadenza for the clarinet. Anthony, do you approach this purely solo writing differently than uh, the rest of the concerto where you're in dialogue with or supported by the orchestra? Yeah, cadenzas are a little bit of a slightly different approach, mainly because I feel like you're more exposed. Everything that you're doing is out there. And so you feel open, you feel naked, but you feel free. And I think that was the thing that I was able to explore, especially in this recording session, performing it, where I did it quite a few times. I did it with the orchestra there, and I did it a few more times just solo in the space. 
And it was interesting how those performances differ sometimes, but it was about bringing the energy of the performance to this and not feeling like, okay, sometimes in recording you feel like, oh, I need to get it right. But I think more importantly, you need to get the energy right. You need to get the spirit right, the musicality, the expression correct. And that is the challenge and that is the beauty of it when you're playing a cadenza. As Malik mentioned earlier, he gave me such freedom to discover the piece on my own. So I would ask him for a couple thoughts and he gave me, I think, maybe a taste of a couple different suggestions. But really he wanted me to discover the music for myself so it spoke through me in the way that I thought was real and authentic. And I think I was able to discover how to do that. And with the written down notes and directions that the composer gives you, they're allowing you to create that freedom with how you play it on your own and to discover the piece, to make it your own, to make it sound like you're making it up as you go along, even though I'm not. <laughs> and that's what cadenzas are for. Composer gave you this outlet to be free. Now, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with it? How does it speak to you? And to really be up there alone, but together making music is really amazing. And I think it's a great cadenza, this virtuosity within and all the variation and all of the use of different melodies within the structure of this freedom, all of the different ideas that come together in this cadenza to make it great. When you're recording a cadenza, for most of the time, you're on your own, usually after the orchestra's left the stage. That gives you probably more time to zero in on things than during the rest of the session? Yeah, you're out there and you can explore the piece and take time to music you can't really get right, but you can try really hard to get to the center, to the core of it. And so I was allowed to do that, and that's really special. Great. Well, coming out of the cadenza, really get to wail at the end. How is it to play that, and do connections to other works you've played come to mind when you have music like this? There are some pieces that are written, concerti and things that are really great pieces, except they don't end with like this rousing finale like this. And so I think it's a great thing when composers have finales where you can just go for it at the end. Because after all of this journey, to actually be able to end with these big climaxes and scales and high notes, it is exciting. It makes you want to stand up at the end. Honestly, I prefer pieces like that. And a lot of the concerti that I love to play have endings like that, where it really just builds to this roaring finale. I should note that while the full album releases on May 12th, we are releasing one track from each concerto, the finales in both cases, a couple weeks early on streaming sites. And in this case, as I mentioned, it is the finale. So if you want an, a sneak preview, be sure to look out for that. Malik, anything else you want to say about this movement uh, and especially the ending before we hear some of it? Yeah, I mean, regarding this finale, I don't want to reveal how many sketches I have <laughs> of this finale because that was like consummating and finalizing everything before sending the concerto to Anthony. I was struggling, how do I end my journey of this concerto? And for the cadenza, I was envisioning the entire orchestra inside Anthony's clarinet. That's why I wanted to have all these fragments, motifs, and registers and going from melody to accompaniment. So he becomes, in a way, the orchestra. This is his moment to shine and to show artistic excellence. But at the same time, 
to, in a way, reduce the entire orchestra into uh, his amazing sound of the clarinet. In a way, it's reminded me of doing the piano reduction. You know, when I presented the concerto to Anthony, I had to do a piano reduction in case he wants to rehearse with the pianist rather than a full orchestra. With the cadenza, I attempted to do the same thing so he becomes the orchestra in a way. Great. Well, we're going to go back to the beginning of the movement for people to listen. This is about the first third of the movement. And once again, we hear clarinetist Anthony McGill with the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Marin Alsop.
You just heard the first part of the finale of the 2021 Concerto for Clarinet and Orchestra by Malik Jandali, as performed by its dedicatee, clarinetist Anthony McGill, with the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Marin Alsop, part of the new CD recording, Malik Jandali Concertos, being released on May 12th. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, and I sure hope you are, you can find the recording many ways. You can pre-order it on Amazon.com or from the Sadie Records website. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E Records dot O-R-G or wherever you like to buy CDs. If you prefer to stream your music on that release date, May 12th, you will find it on Spotify and Apple Music and all the other streaming sites out there. And as I mentioned, some tracks will be released in advance of that, so you can look out for those. Now that this has been recorded, are there any plans for live performances of this wonderful concerto? Are either or, or both of you pitching it to orchestras right now? Oh, yeah, we are for sure. And I, I believe there's uh, <laughs> one or two scheduled. Yes, it's uh, March 9th, 2024. That will be with the Fairfax Symphony Orchestra under the baton of Chris Zimmerman. And uh, I'm sure Anthony is pitching it to the New York Philharmonic. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to do it with them. So it's just a matter of if anyone's listening to this, <laughs> we want to do it more. So it deserves to be heard. And I'm sure what happens is that it'll probably cascade once people hear it. And we have, in addition to the recorded version, a live version that people can really sink their teeth into. It happens that the piece slowly gets into the repertoire and starts being performed more and more as people understand how it reaches people in live performance as well. So I look forward to that. Well, I sure hope the recording, when it comes out, will be of help in those efforts, because yes, this concerto deserves to be heard live as well as on recording. So Anthony, what's next for you? What are the highlights of your upcoming summer and the next concert season? Yeah, so I have a busy summer as usual, traveling around to different music festivals. This summer I'll be in Portland at Chamber Music Northwest. I'll be at Marlboro for quite a few weeks now where I've started my chamber music career. I'm going to Santa Fe uh, Chamber Music Festival and La Jolla Summerfest, which is great. And in the fall, uh, a couple of exciting things. I'm opening up this season at the Dallas Symphony playing Copeland Concerto and have a residency at the Barbican in London, which I'm excited about next year, two weeks there. And, you know, quite a few other things, chamber music and solo throughout the season. So it'll be another busy one, but I'm really happy and grateful the concerts are coming back. And I should note that just after this album is being released, you are co-hosting a convening with the Equal Justice Initiative. Can you talk about that? Yes. I believe that sometimes in our history, we tend to forget a lot of it. And in America, I think especially as people do work toward diversity and towards equality and against injustice, it helps to know more about what really happened here in the history of America. And so I'm teaming up with Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative to bring whoever wants to go to experience the real history of America in Alabama and and how a lot of it all started there with the slave trade and how we look at the world around us and we wonder why it looks the way it does and why it is the way it is. If we know the true history 
of everything that happened here, there's a healing process that happens from being confronted with all of the pain and violence that was perpetrated here that can bring us into a better place and hopefully a more positive and inspiring place to do the work towards equality for all the people in the future. And whether that's in different fields besides music or music, but I feel like with all of the people in music that care about these things, and even if people don't, I think it's probably because they don't know the history of it. I think it's really important for us to experience what Equal Justice Initiative is doing down in Alabama and to be able to use that to go forward in our own organizations to try to do work to move the needle so there's more diversity on stages, more diversity in our programming and our recordings and our musical appreciation. So that's what we're trying to do. And so I'm really happy about that. And hopefully we'll do it in the future, in future years. But I think everyone in America should experience the Legacy Museum that Brian and, and EJI has built in Alabama. And that's, of course, is specifically in Montgomery, Alabama. And this is one of a series of such convenings they've done. And this one is particularly for the classical music industry. And I was very honored that you invited me to participate in it. Yeah, I hope as we see how this goes and it gets off the ground, that more and more people will be able to just experience the place. I think that's the most important thing. More people should experience this. It's like America's Holocaust Museum. People don't know about that it exists. And I think people will be terribly moved by this place, by the work that the organization is doing, and hopefully be inspired to make change in their own lives and in the lives of others. Well, I look forward to it. So, Malik, what are you looking forward to in terms of performance and new compositions in the coming months and 23-24 season? First, I'm having goosebumps because Brian Stevenson is a dear friend of mine, and I shared the stage with him at the School Forum at Oxford and at the Aspen Ideas Festival. And during writing this clarinet concerto, I watched the movie Just Mercy that featured what he's doing here in America, in Montgomery. And not to mention, he's one of our ambassadors for peace for my organization, Pianos for Peace. So it's amazing how small the world is and how everything thing comes back to you. <laughs> this is amazing. So when, when Anthony was talking about Brian, I was like having all these goosebumps. For me, uh, this is one of the most important highlights for this season is the release of this concerti. And then after that, I have another album with Marin and Vienna Radio Symphony featuring my symphonies number five and eight. And looking forward to finishing my opera, <laughs> which I have been attempting to write. Hopefully, I will uh, wrap it up this year and present it to the commissioner and hopefully present it and bring it to life next year. Beautiful. I always like to end these podcasts with a Chicago question. Uh, I'm going to frame it a little differently for each of you. So, Anthony, how did growing up in Chicago contribute to your success and do you feel the opportunities for those growing up here now are the same or different that they were for you? Well, when I grew up in Chicago, I think the trick is that there's opportunity out there, but I feel like we were lucky because we discovered some of the organizations and some of the people in that city that really love and support the arts, but also believe in a more equitable world for everyone. So it was a real gift that I grew up in a place where an organization like the Merritt School of Music existed 
And one of part of its mission was to reach inner city kids and offer free tuition and free lessons for folks that maybe wouldn't have been able to attend expensive music school or something like that. And we discovered this whole community of people in Chicago that not only really love the arts, but really believe in the beauty of diversity in the world and philanthropy. And so those two communities coming together is what created the opportunities that my brother and I were able to take advantage of. And Chicago is still doing really amazing things artistically as far as reaching communities and doing great work with performance-based art and with recording, of course, with CD Records. And this is, even if I had not recorded with CD Records, I think having you just look at the list of recordings and the type of recordings and the type of artists and the quality of those recordings, and you see where the values lie in that organization. And it's like that with a lot of different organizations in Chicago. And I just hope everyone finds out about that if they don't already know about it and support those organizations. Chicago, with all of its troubles, people should highlight more all of the good things that are going on in some of these communities in the city. I don't live there anymore, but what I see when I go in and I reconnect with some of my Chicago family, I do still see amazing things going on. For instance, you look at even the Chicago Sinfonietta. It's one of the only professional orchestras in the country like it, which has a specific mission and gives great concerts. From that to the music of the Baroque, I'm so varied and different, the types of music, the types of organizations that you have in the city that do different things, but all toward creating more beautiful music in the world. I'm really proud to be from Chicago, and I'm always happy to go back. Well, and I will certainly endorse that the Merritt School of Music and also the other organization that you and your brother were both principals of, the Chicago Youth Symphony Orchestras, are still going strong. In fact, I should mention that your previous concerto recording together, Winged Creatures, was with the Chicago Youth Symphony Orchestra, and where Sadie is in the midst of another project with them, highlighting another former CYSO principal uh, right now. So we're very glad about that. And speaking of people growing up and being educated musically in Chicago, Malik, I just wonder, is it a coincidence that you chose two soloists who were born and bred in Chicago for this project, or whether there's something about the Chicago music scene and the artists it produces that may appeal to you. As I mentioned earlier, it all started with my conversation with Anthony in Chicago. I summarize it in one word, it's fate. I don't believe in coincidence. It's just fate that happened from the clarinet concerto into the violin concerto. And then I was introduced to Rachel and it all came together. And then from Rachel and having Anthony and Rachel both on the same album, it was just a no brainer to release this album with you and the CD Records being a big advocate for Chicago. And my hope really is to have the world best orchestra, the Chicago Symphony, to embrace these concertos and hopefully premiere them. And I want to thank everybody involved, Jim, you and Julia and uh, all your board of directors and and everybody involved here to, to bring my music to life. Uh, it's a struggle, it's a journey, but it's very rewarding, especially when you have a meaningful and timely message of peace, equality, justice, and freedom. I'm grateful again for everybody's contribution and dedication and passion and time. It took a long time to bring this album to life. <laughs> I'm grateful. I'm forever grateful for my sponsors, uh, Qatar Museums, Queen's University, 
Mirren, the orchestra, the soloists, and everybody involved. Thank you so much, and thank you all for listening to this really special podcast about a really special album.